This is the Leaders Who Learn podcast, produced by Claremont Lincoln University. This podcast highlights the dimensions of leadership urgently needed today, the collaboration necessary for leading well, and the ways to tap the leader within each of us. Interviews showcase ethical and humble leaders who listen, learn, and build a legacy of gratitude, service, and transparency in their businesses and communities. Our hosts, Dr. Joanna Bauer and Dr. Lynn Pretty get into the specifics with each guest, and we ask questions that need to be answered about ethical leadership and leading in today's society. Now, let's hear from our hosts. Welcome back to the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University, a university focused on socially conscious education, exploring new different and urgently needed forms of leadership. Check CLU out, everybody. I'm Dr. Lynn Pretty, And I'm Dr. Joanna Bauer. We're your hosts. And today we have the CEO of Logitech with one of those names you never forget, Bracken Darrell. Of course, he shepherded Logitech in a turnaround to significant success over the past eight years. But today we're focused on his views on leaders and learning. Hello, Bracken. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks so much for having me. You're right. My name is... is uh... Is very strange. Usually people get it backwards. So I, I always say I answer either Bracken Daryl or Daryl Bracken. And so is that a given name? I have to ask you, is it a given name? Is it like a mashup of your mom and dad's name, something or just? I wouldn't call it given. It's more like forced, but I, but I certainly got it. And uh, no, it's not a mashup of anybody. I think my parents knew some little boy named Bracken and I've never met another one. So I don't know where he was or where he went. But yeah, well, it, it's, it's a given name. But it, you know, it's got that ring. I mean, it's got that allure. You don't forget it. We'll put it that way. So um, we want to explore some leadership. You, you've you um, done turnarounds. You've been in several places and you've done startups. And we want to know what you think of leadership. And, and we're going to start off kind of simple and then delve deep. So okay. if you're hiring leaders today, if you were to hire leaders, what would you look for? What are the most important attributes you think are necessary as we emerge from the pandemic and from the social unrest? Well, I think, you know, it, it comes back to maybe uh, two or three things. The first one I would say is, is uh, just authenticity, like a real person. You know, I, it's, it's, I wouldn't say that if I'm interviewing somebody like right out of school, because who knows what you're, who knows who you are when you graduate from college. You know? <laughs> it's true. But by the time you get to the point where you're, where I'd be hiring you to work for me, which is, you know, it'd be most of the people have been out of school a little while, you should know kind of who you are. And you don't have to have it locked down. We're always changing, but and you should be comfortable enough in your skin that you're not trying to uh, say things about yourself that aren't, aren't completely true. Or So I think just having somebody who's really comfortable in their skin, that's number one. Number two is, uh, you know, I think it, today in particular, I would say, you need people who have values. If you haven't, if you if you're listening out there and you haven't defined what your values are, I would say this is a good time to start. You know, put this on pause and go do it, because it's going to be really hard to to work in a world where you don't stand for something in the future, because you're going to stand alone and not in a good way. So define what you're all about. You know, and uh, and I think one of those is, is obviously integrity, but that's just one of them. I think that's the second thing I'd probably look for if I were hiring today. And the, the third one is, you know, and this is a little bit of a harder one, is I love people with a lot of drive. 
you know, and it's hard to, I'm a terrible interviewer. So this, this suggests that I would know what I was doing in an interview, which I don't, but, but I would say if I could figure out if somebody has a lot of drive, just a, a drive to make an impact, drive to, you know, I would always be looking for that because it means right. things are going to happen. Maybe not always good things, but things are going to happen. Right. You keep it moving and, and you fail. So you pick up and you move on and you try something Absolutely. new. Always a roller coaster, but always yeah. learning. I was, well, I want to push you on the values piece. So do you see that changing today? I mean, I am thinking people have values that are a little bit rattled after the past year. And, and so what about leaders who suddenly are confronting themselves now, whether it's about racism, whether it's about health, whether it's about how to even organize for innovation with the new generations? Um, have you seen values change? Have your values changed over the years? Yeah, I think, I think uh, first of all, I should have said that when I mentioned values. I, I didn't mean to say that people necessarily have a good hard fix on them, but that they think they're important, you know? Um, yeah, do I think values are changing? Yeah, I think people's values are changing. For the most part, they're getting more refined all the time. I don't think people are flip-flopping from, you know, I'm a racist to I'm, I'm an anti-racist. <laughs> I think they're they're realizing, you know, I'm not, I'm not a racist, but everybody needs to be an anti-racist. And so it's a refinement, a big refinement, but a refinement that I think comes with uh, more knowledge, you know? And, and so I think these, the, and, and in the environment, you know, I think a lot of people who weren't into the environment uh, or aren't, maybe aren't now or listening here, you know, probably, have, probably haven't heard enough, you know, about what's really going on with uh, global warming and what's causing it and all those things. And there are a lot of skeptics out there about whether it's even happening, but uh, it's happening. <laughs> so, right. yeah. so I think, I think, you know, the, the, when, once you realize this is really happening, then you say, okay, well, this is super important. Then it becomes like a, it's, it's always important that the world is safe, but that, that moves up on your value scale, you know? So, and, and so stack up how you're seeing leadership nationally versus globally. Logitech is global and you bump into leaders all over the world. Are they pretty much the same? Do you see big changes or differences in regions? I think, you know, there are different, there are cultural differences between what a, what a manager does. And we all have leadership job and management jobs. What a manager job does, what manager does in one location or another one. So if you mix that up with leadership, you can get a very different answer. I think great leaders are great leaders, you know, great leaders, communicate well, they, they don't have to be extroverted, but they communicate well. They have uh, enough imagination to create a vision, even if it's blurry, that, that people say, okay, well, I know where we're going. Uh, usually they're pretty compelling about why you need to get there or how you're gonna get there or both, so that you really wanna follow them. So I think, I mean, I've worked in so many countries in the world. I mean, I've lived in many different countries. I, I, I see that as a commonality among leaders. And the cultural differences end up coming down mostly to management. Now, there are cultural differences that are value differences, and that's another story. We could probably talk that later. But, but yeah, I would say a great leader is a great leader is a great leader. Interesting. And, and the great leader is a great leader, great leader. Authenticity, integrity, holds their values, has drive, passion. Going to make something Absolutely. happen. Okay. Absolutely. And I, got, and I can see that in Joanna's Good. eyes. Joanna, jump in here. You're really good at that. Yeah, so uh, moving on to what what you said in terms of your who what you're looking for. And when I was reading some of your articles and so forth, and of course, with our podcast, we're talking about leaders who learn and how that's so important. 
leaders who are flexible, who shift, who grow, who change, and they're not scared to do that. And they're, they're also supported to do that. So what is your experience in that, in terms of constantly learning and constantly growing? How have you been able to manage that? And how do you support that in others? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I got a whole bunch of contradictions to this answer. So first, <laughs> go for it. You know, first, I grew up in a family of educators. You know, my, my parents are both educators. My uh, one side of my grand, my family, my grandparents were both educators. My, uh, my brother was president of a, of a small college in Kentucky for a while. So I, I grew up with this education value, let's say, you know, it was just mantra, like education is everything. On the other hand, I worked in these large uh, companies and one of the, in one of them, they're while well, they had a great training program there was this underlying sort of belief that you know you give people a chance for a little while and then if they don't if they don't can't deliver sayonara you know goodbye and and so i probably got a little bit of this guy you know if you haven't learned so if you haven't learned something hard by a certain age it's probably too hard to learn once you get beyond that and it wasn't until the last 10 years that i completely flipped on that hmm. and i now believe there is nothing really nothing that a person can't learn all the way until the, the last day of their life. And I think, and, and I think if you combine that with the reality that you now with the rate of change that's happening literally everywhere, mm -hmm. um, you know, you better be a great learner and you want to be a great learner because then you're going to be in the, in the game, you know, and the minute you stop learning, it's like, it's like, it's like feeling <laughs> like you're on the train on the side of the track, you know, and, and you see the train start to pick up steam and go right by you. So you need to be in a learning mode all the time and, and everybody can be. But there's a lot of people who don't, or they don't want to be, or they don't know that they're not, they don't, they think they're learning, but they're not, they might be learning and, and hearing more, but they don't change or they're not flexible uh -huh. to implement that learning. So uh -huh. how do you support that in, in your company? And, and how do you say we need to be learners? Is it that you model it yourself or do you really do something to implement sim learning? Well, we have two values, but first of all, I, I'm a, I hope I model that, but I'm not a good, I'm not a particularly good coach or manager. So I'm sure I'm not coaching or managing that very well, but, but I'm, I'm sure I am modeling that. And we have two values that we define in our company that both happen to, um, happen to be on this topic. One of them is on, we call it challenge. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, the, the, the story there is we, we want everybody, we're, don't, I won't pretend our company is this way. This is an aspirational attribute of our culture. Mm -hmm. We want, we, we want you to go out and find challengers to your ideas. So we literally, we have 10 values in the company. That's one of them. And, and I'd say it's the hardest one to deliver. But we want you to go, when you have something, you don't expect everybody to challenge you. You go find or ask them to challenge you. So that kind of, and then I guess the other, on the other end of the spectrum, I think we are quite kind of a humble culture. That's mm -hmm. another value we have, humility. And I think inherent in humility is this idea that I don't know, you know, yeah. so many things and I need to learn and I want to learn. So those two values we, we talk about a lot. And, you know, I think we end up hiring people who are a lot like that, who are learners. I'm interrupting you too, and it's so fascinating. So, um, Bracken, we—I almost called you Daryl. Just Don't worry, I'm used to <laughs> I knew that was gonna—I knew that was gonna happen. Um, so, Bracken, we we just interviewed Edgar Schein and Peter Schein. I don't know if you know him in academe. They long, long time old organizational leaders, and they said after their decades—and I mean 
Edgar Schein's 92, 92, and he did this podcast with us. And wow. he said exactly the same thing. He said, if you can have a combination of someone who is, assumes they don't know and goes out and asks, then, and, and at the same time has the humbleness with which to listen mm -hmm. and yet still retains that confidence and drive, yeah. you've got a leader. Boy, that, that's much more articulate than I'll ever be. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I think that combination of humility and self-confidence is a really strange combination, but it's true. And it's, um, you know, it's, if you really think about the, the top people that way, you know, and I, it's funny, you know, I, 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 in this area, for example, of racism, I, I thought, man, I just went through a big growth spurt, you know, I've become like an expert. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've gone from, from being an idiot to an expert, and I thought I was an expert before. So I really did make this enormous, you know, self-taught, you know, person, mm -hmm. friend taught. Got, I still have to I got it. up here. I really got there. And then I was feeling quite proud of the fact that I'd finally, you know, gotten all this intellectual capital here. And then I, I had a discussion with somebody about something, and I just got cut down to size. And I realized, <laughs> I so don't you love it? Yeah. yeah. You know, I have so much headroom, you know, it's just so good, you know, because you realize it's, it's, it's a cliche, you realize the longer you live, how little you know, you know, the more you learn, how little you know. Well, and that's one of the things that we've really focused on with our students is we talk about opposing viewpoints. So just like yeah. you said, go out and find an opposing, it's really easy to find somebody who agrees with you, Always. but go out and find some opposing viewpoint. And we, at Claremont Lincoln, we talk about the core. So we have our core, which is yeah. mindfulness, dialogue, collaboration, and change. And that's a yeah. large part of that is being self-aware and then bringing that to others yeah. and, and how that leads to better um, leaders. But I wanna, I wanna go back to something you said that we read about in your, in your bio is that you said you fired yourself once. Or almost. Or almost, almost fired yourself once. So um, <laughs> what, what was the most important reason? What did you say that said, oh, I need to fire myself? And then to that, was that sort of your biggest um, learning point, your failure, if you will? Uh, I mean, I failed so many times that I, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't call that my biggest or, or my smallest. But no, the, the reason why I got there was because I've been here for five years. The company was work, was very different from when I started. Um, and our, you know, we, we, we were worth, uh, I think, eight, eight times more than we were when I started. So, but I knew that, you know, the next five years, we'd need, we need to change even more, a lot more. And so, or I believed that, you know, so I thought, can I really be the right person if I've changed this to where we are? But now we're going to have to change, who knows, back to where we were, but or, or change in another direction. Can I really be the right person if I decided that most of the strategies, I hired most of the people, I've touched every product you can think of. So, and, and the culture, you know, I thought, no, I can't be. I mean, by definition, there's no way I can be the right person. Even if my background looks really good for the job for the next five years. So I decided this is impossible. So I, so I decided to fire myself. I thought I'd tell my chair, chair the next day, and uh, but I'll sleep on it because I learned that if you sleep on decisions, that for me, I don't know about you guys, it's about 50-50. Yeah. You know, you yeah. anything the next morning, it's a 50-50 it's shot whether I change it. Well, it was the other 50. So I woke up and I thought, nope, that's wrong. I can do this job for the next, but I have to, sign a contract with myself that I will have no sacred cows. And I immediately started changing things again and, uh, and got myself back to what I call zero. And it was so refreshing. I felt like a newcomer again. I was mm. like, to work, you know, 
and I and I now I'm, now I'm starting to think you can do it. You just have to. It's all about this learning thing. It's all about getting getting people to challenge you, getting yourself back to zero again. Mm-hmm. I, I and now I wonder how often you could do that. Could you do that? You know, every three years, or every year, or every month, or every week, or every day. You know, maybe that's my dream is every day. You know, it'd be totally inefficient if you had to learn everything all over again every day. But but if you had if you could be that objective about things, it'd be super helpful. And I'm I'm trying. You know. That's I love kind of, that. That's that mindfulness and that self-awareness. Go ahead, Lynn. What were you going to say? No, uh, that has to be really hard. I'm thinking about waking up and you're saying, no, I'm going to start brand new. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to fail and blah, blah, blah. But that means you dig in. And if everything's fresh, that means you are inherently restructuring and moving people out and are calling them to do the same. And that's tough work. What's your, been your toughest work as a leader? Uh, well, I had a, you know, a big restructuring job, as you said, when yeah. I first came yeah. to my, comp- my lab, current company. And, <clears throat> and uh, you know, on the one hand, that was tough. On the other hand, you know, I've, I've, I've learned, I've been lucky enough to be in places where the average person who left ended up in a better job than what they, mm. where they, where they, oh, they had before. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can't feel too bad. Plus, I didn't know people. I mean, it would have been really hard for me had I known everybody. So Toughest jobs, you know, it's really hard for me to think of any jobs really tough. The toughest jobs for me are boring administrative jobs. I'm really <laughs> thank you. We would Joanne and I would agree with you. We like <laughs> we are both yeah. provocateurs and rabble rousers. Oh, and yeah, we need rebels on this on this podcast. <laughs> you guys are. I mean, it, because otherwise, well, no, I don't want to say that because other folks probably really like that stability, mm-hmm. and maybe they're doing that that elsewhere, which um, you know just. Brings it back to needing the different team. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, it's so hard for me to think that way, but I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people who probably do want stability. I, I was the um, perfect, from, a, from the outside, I think I was the, the uh, ultimate, fo- you know, person who would always fit in and be a follower. And it took me a long time to really? finally get to the point where, where I, I was totally comfortable being the rebel that I think I was, always was. You know, if, if somebody told me so, I needed to do something some way, I was always trying to figure out how to do it the opposite. Or, you know, if you want me to stand on one leg and juggle, I'd try to figure out how to stand on one arm and not juggle. I, you know, anything, <laughs> anything to avoid being told what to do. Mm-hmm. And did that happen? Now, you went to Hendricks College, right? Uh, that's right. In, in Arkansas, so you've been there. But um, so was that you before Hendrix? That you as a result of college, or just that's just been your trait? Well, I, you know, I don't even know if it was me fifteen years ago. I mean, oh, I, interesting. Okay, I was very, very. I've, I've always been very driven, and I was, I was trying to build, build a brand so I could, so I could have a bigger and bigger impact, and you know, personal brand with experiences and knowledge and stuff, and opportunities, and, and so. I don't, I would not have called myself a rebel. I mean, I wasn't the kind of person who was out, you know, doing rebellious things. But underneath, I guess I was always there. You know, it's really puzzling to me that I've become this. You know, I think you're, maybe who, who I really was didn't come out until I finally was running my own thing. And mm-hmm. I didn't, I also didn't feel particularly creative. You know, I would have said, you know, hey, is, are you creative? No, not really. No, I think I'm really creative, but I would not have said that before. So, so just more evidence that I think you just continue to change throughout your life. So let's shift gears just a, a little bit um, and, and go to the opposite side of, of leadership. When you have a sense or have you ever had a sense that you're off base? 
I would, I would imagine today, I mean, even today as I'm looking around and I'm looking at higher education and I talk with a lot of presidents, Joe does as well, Joanna does as well, and we're sensing this unease out there, almost as if leaders feel like they're a little off base. Any, any thoughts about when you know you're off base? You talked about firing yourself, I would guess you'd say that, but other things, we even have students who say they feel like they're off base. They're not sure where they're trying to get to as a leader. Yeah, I, I think the only times when I've ever felt um, off base, which I probably have occasionally felt, was when I felt a lack of uh, progress or action. Yeah. You know, interesting. Okay. And, and almost a, a sort of a, a quiet boredom, you know? And I'm not a boring, I'm not a boring person. Maybe I am a boring person, but I don't get bored easily. So I'm, I'm, I'm not easily bored. I mean, I, I can never, I am never bored. I can't think of one time in my life when I felt bored. But there's this, there's, there are moments in my life where I have this, you know, and when, when I run into that, I end up doing, I add things to my life. I had, you know, I start reading about art, I start reading about physics and stuff. So I never bored, but in, in my career, I think where there were these little minor dead spots, you know, it was like, and it wasn't necessarily because things weren't going well. It was often when they were going the very best. So when, so now because of that, I've had those in my past. Now when things are going especially well, I want to tear everything down and start over again. I want to, I, I can't stand it. You know, I really, like right now, we just reported our earnings. We, you know, we, now we're, I saw we're, that. You're up, we're, exceeded we're expectations. Yeah, we're yep. worth 14 times more than we were when I started. And, and, I, and I have this strong um, uh, desire to, to tear everything down and rebuild it again. Yeah. And I won't really do that. So if you're an investor out there listening, don't panic. But, but, it, but I, <laughs> I it's like, it's, it's, it's a desire to, to constantly change things because I know that things around us are changing. And if things are going really well, that means we, we have to be so careful because we'll get stuck in this success syndrome, okay. you know, which is like, then you start protecting what's what you mm-hmm. think is working, and before you know it, one day, your 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 best quarter is preceded by is, is is the is is succeeded by your worst, you know, and then it's the beginning of a problem. So I don't like the status quo. You know, you may just have defined the difference between managing and leading. I mean, all throughout this, I've heard. So let me let me propose something back to you and talk to us about it. Um, you speak. I think you even slipped in there that you don't think you're the best manager mm-hmm. and, and stability is not for you. And so uh, talk to us about the difference between leading versus managing, the stability versus the constant seeking of innovation and change. Yeah, you know, it, uh, this, is, this, this could probably be a two-hour podcast with, with much better <laughs> qualified people to talk about it than me. I, I think... To me, managing is about organizing work to accomplish something. And leading is about, um, at least the leading that I especially like, is finding a place other people aren't going or a way to get to some place that other people would want to go that's different. And so leading is inherently a little risky and, yeah. and a little bit um, adventurous. Managing is powerful and a little more predictable. So I'm attracted to leadership. I'm a little repelled by management. And so I would rather, so I tend to hire leaders, but I really admire good managers. 
I know they're amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, thank you for that. I went to um, this next question takes us back to your focus on anti-racism. And, you know, this has shaken us at Claremont Lincoln University. We, we have really tried to create patterns of learning for ethical leadership, but we have been challenged hard by our um, diverse faculty and, and, and department chairs. And they said, we, no way are we really dealing with racism. And, and we can't do it with just a series of town halls. What, what would, how do you see what an anti-racist, what do we need to do to be anti-racist versus just promoting ethical leadership? Or is, are they one and the same? Help us sort it out. Okay, so the way I thought about it, um, after a while, believe me, it took me a while to get here, was, you know, you grow up and you think, or at least I grew, I grew up in the South with, when my parents were like the most, uh, most open-minded, Every, everyone belongs, you know, cool. sexual orientation, race, of course. Wow. You know, everything, go, anything goes. And and they were totally supportive of that and believed in it so deeply that my mother, when the United Methodist Church, you know, recently started to come apart, I thought she was rolling over in her grave gun, you know, because uh, they were they were coming out saying that um, homosexuals couldn't be uh, in the in, uh, ministers. And one side was. And so the church literally split down the middle over it. So, you know, I grew up in that world. And my, I'll never forget my, I told Joe on this one on the last podcast, the Edda podcast, I, I, we were driving, we were moving when I was six years old from Texas to Kentucky, and we were on the, somewhere in the middle of the South, and, and, uh, and I'm from the South, so I can say this, you, you Southerners out there, we, <laughs> stopped, we pulled over and we stopped at a roadside cafe, the old kind with the bar, you know, they, where they served ice cream. Sure, sure, yeah. Shakes and milkshakes and stuff. Anyway, we sit at the, we sit down at the bar. We get the plastic menu, and we're, my three siblings and I are sitting there, and I'm I'm the third of the four, and I'm six years old. And then I I look down. My mom's having a heated discussion with the with the guy working at the front, who's an older guy. And then I feel I, I look back down at the menu, and I feel the I feel somebody grab me by the back of my shirt and pull me over the stool, like on the floor. Which my mom is the nicest person in the world. She'd never touch anybody. <laughs> really, my mom, and she's pulling us by our shirts out the door. And I found out later that there was a sign up that said, no Jews, no blacks, no service. And so she was furious. She, she refused to eat there. She, refused, she, she wasn't even thinking about eating there. So, so that's the environment, that's the home I grew up in, which is, you know, I would say she was a, had anti-racism from head to toe. But, you know, so I thought that's me, you know, mm -hmm. they're the racists, they're the, they're the, all the rest of us, and there, there are a few people who are who are really out there fighting for, for, uh, for the rights of those people in a different way because they have certain you know, advantages, skills, platforms, whatever. I realized at some point during post George Floyd that you know I was I really didn't get this at all. I mean I, I'm standing here in the middle of apartheid in the U.S. and and I'm one of the bad well, people because you know you, you wouldn't say there are burglars. There are those of us who don't believe in bur burglary, and then there are anti-burglars. Everybody's an anti-burglar. I mean, everybody's against burglar. We we all are anti-racist, unless you're a racist. I mean, you have to be an anti-racist. How can you not be an anti-racist? It's impossible not to be. I just so when I that that light kind of went off for me. So what is the what is anti-racism? It's really despising uh, racism and rooting it out at every cause and every and calling it out and then. 
being very comfortable talking about it and admitting your own vulnerability, your own mistakes. You know, I was, uh, I needed a frying pan of the head, which was George Floyd to really get that I wasn't using my platform to sure. fight racism, not to mention other forms of discrimination. So thank God that that uh, that frying pan hit me when it did. And I feel so sorry that it, ha it had to come from George Floyd or anyone else who's been killed, hurt, or, or disrespected over the over all this time that the US has been here because um, it's horrible. And but you know what, it took a lot of us to finally get it. And now we have to do something. It's a now it's a it's a moral and ethical requirement. And it's certainly a leader's requirement. So what is Logitech doing? Or what's your vision for what it will do? Well, we put out a seven point plan um, back in, May, in Juneteenth. So we put out a seven point plan and I won't go through them all, but I'll give you one example. For the, okay. the most important one is public accountability. So we're, we're putting everything out there for all, everybody to look at. And then we're asking to be held accountable. And the numbers, our numbers, for example, in uh, supplier diversity, you know how many black suppliers we had when we started? 652 suppliers in the US, zero. <gasps> so, wow. And, and people who don't understand what systemic racism is will say, well, yeah, that's, I get it, you know, but that's not systemic racism. No, that's systemic racism. There's no way to get to zero out of 652 and not have it be systemic. It doesn't mean that we're sitting here with a bunch of racists in our company, you know. Right, right. Saying, no, not that square, because that one's black. It's, it's systemically disadvantaged for black people. And, and by the way, our under, other underrepresented minorities, 2%. Women, five percent. All yeah. those. Systemic. Yeah. They're systemic because they're networked. It's it's who where your network came from. It's who has the best scale. Who has the history of doing it. It's all those mm -hmm. things. That you're taught to think are right. Are actually in some way they're right, and in a bigger way they're wrong. So, bottom line is we're we're going after everything. Uh, you know, uh, level of diversity. You know, what kind of leadership we have at every level. What our suppliers look like. Um, everything. Who, what kind of companies we look at. I'm doing it on the personal front. I, I used to do a lot of angel investing. I'm just going straight out and saying, okay, show me uh, BIPOC, you know, black people of color entrepreneurs because I was not seeing them. My, my network wasn't bringing them to right. me. Right, right. Well, I'm going to go find them. And by the way, I'm amazed at what I'm finding. Fantastic entrepreneurs. I mean, I can't get, I mean, I, I, there's so many good options. So anyway, uh, so we're doing a lot of different things inside LifeStack, you know. Yeah, um, just ruminating on that and what what we need to do and to move forward. And so if we think about in the space of higher ed um, and what that looks like, we know this is a pivot point for higher ed. We know that something needs to happen with that future. And so from your experience as a leader, and obviously you deal in higher ed, what does that look like? What should higher ed, what should colleges be doing? How do we promote that, that learning and the diversity and so forth from your perspective? Well, so if you're talking just about this aspect, the diversity, racism, et cetera. Well, just I, leadership as we move into, you know, post COVID and what do we need? Okay. I mean, I, I don't know because I'm not, on the, on the specific on racism, I would say the most important thing is you know, you're an educational institution and the biggest problem here is education. So, <laughs> right. This is, this is yep. the number one problem. There are probably people who no matter how much education they got, they would be racist, but I think it's very, very few. The vast majority of people are, are not, they're not bad people. They just have uh, a big gap in education. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, our fault. it's all of our fault. It's our opportunity, you know, to fix it. So, so I'd say as an educational institution, if you don't, if you don't have a curriculum that covers it, build it into you know fifty percent of your classes. So you have to get it because it's right. a, it really is needed. In terms of where is education going? You said past COVID nineteen, but I would just say in the twenty first century anyway. You know, I have a very strong point of view on this. I I think you know you know if you're if you're over the age of 70, you grew up in a world where your parents were, you probably grew up in a home where both your parents were at home and you went to church or synagogue or mm-hmm. something every Sunday or Saturday. And so you, from the, from your parents, you got kind of, how do you do things and how do you get things done? And um, how do you do things the right way? And from your, your church or synagogue or mosque or whatever, you, you got morals and ethics, which is kind of, well, you put those two together and you kind of knew who you were and how you're supposed to act. Now roll forward to, to today, the, the, the home I grew up in, or the home kids are growing up in today. Most of them have one parent at home. That parent's not really home that much because that parent is working mm-hmm. her tail off to, to support them. And so the kid is there alone a lot of the time, learning on their own through the internet the, um, or from their friends. They don't go to anything on Sunday or Saturday because the average person doesn't. And so what you have is, then you go through, and then the education institutions haven't changed much. So they're still cha- teaching the same content. It's just content. You know, you teach right. accounting. It's math. First it's math and English, and then it, later it's accounting and economics. And what, ha- what about that big gap out there, which is how to live a strategic life, how to, be, how to live a good life? It's not there. So, so then somewhere by the time you're 25 or 26 or 30 or 35, after you've you know, seen a few psychologists and... <laughs> I wish you'd seen them earlier. You start into the uh, self-help books and the in the and on, on Amazon, you know. Right. And and I think you know what what an education is. Some of them, so maybe you. It sounds like you guys are doing it. Have a real opportunity to do is to is to teach strategic living as really the fundamental, the fundamental job. You know, this is so interesting because you know there's strategic living, and then I think you are rattling off the classic general education, right? Math, English. Um, the writing, the, the, the history, the geography, all good things. But nowhere in that gen ed is sustainability or climate change. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in there is, you might have an anthropology course, you might have a black history month, but, but nothing related to anti-racism and very little around a purpose-driven or a strategic life. Just, just isn't. Yeah. And it, it calls for a completely different kind of curricula. Those are brilliant points on the anti-racism. You know, I grew up, I don't know about you, but did you know the story about the, uh, uh, and I don't know the story firsthand, so I may, I may be getting it wrong. So I apologize to anybody who, who knows it better than I do and isn't getting their platform to tell it, but about the kind of the, the father of, of gynecology who did experiments on, on uh, slave women. Yeah. And it's essentially torture, you know, and yet I didn't get taught that in school. I did get taught about, I did get taught about the Holocaust. Maybe not as much as we should have, but, you know, or what about our, you know, I hope kids today are getting that. I just don't know. But I think those, those are parts of, um, those are the ugly parts of history that, you know, that don't get taught a lot need to get taught, you know, and, and, and then there's the positive side. There's so many positives, there's so many positives and negatives you don't hear. If you're, if you're the majority, you get to hear about yourself all the time. If you're the minority, you get to hear about yourself very little. And we talk about a lot. I love your point about, we talk here at CLU about how we have to move away from education 
to advocating. And so that's really where we're trying to go and to infuse that, infuse that in our thought leadership, infuse that in our curricula, just infuse it as a culture. And I, and it sounds like that's where your, your mindset is too. I think it's very interesting. You know, I think a lot of professors um, would be, you know, there are professors who do that. Like, mm-hmm. like uh, Jennifer Everhart, who's at Stanford, who wrote the yeah. book Class, who teaches uh, police forces, you know, how to spot their own bias or, or, or racism. Um, and it's really interesting. If you haven't read her book, it's a fascinating book. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea and a good idea. It's, it's, um, it's where the, uh, the, the key leaders in higher ed, which I believe are the faculty, are doing great things, but the yeah. institution itself steps back. It doesn't, it rarely takes that kind of, other than in athletics or, or in some other kind of auxiliary ways. So, um, you know, a lot's been made. I'd love your perspective on a lot has been made that the degree is going by the wayside it's constant certificate learning. As soon as Amazon's credential is recognized, we'll no longer need higher ed. Um, what's your thoughts about that in terms of higher ed? Well, you know, I mean, I, I certainly think that uh, to quote, well, uh, so many people said it, I don't need to quote anybody, but I, I think, you know, education is becoming uh, a lifelong activity, not a four year long event. And so I do think. You need the educational institutions are aware of that, but they're still acting a little like it's a four-year-long event because it's really hard to figure out what the lifelong thing looks like and how you want to do that. So it's really hard to figure that out. So I think every every educational institution needs to be experimenting with how do I make this not just four years of of uh, of giving you a whole bunch of information and, 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 tre- and interrogation and stuff. How do I turn it into a lifelong event? But that's easier said than done. So it's very easy yeah. to synthesize and say that. You know, I think, um, I, I, I guess I think if, if I were, if I were in the, in an educational institution today, I would think really hard about how to reposition the whole program against lifelong learning, even if it's only a four year, four year program. And so it would always be, you know, I'm giving you a taste of this, but this is where it's going to go from here. And then you're on your own. And so it's much more back to the starting point about strategic living and strategic learning rather than what content you're learning right. or how you're living today. Did I answer your question? Well, see, I'm thinking, yeah, you did. And I'm thinking of what you said earlier about, you know, the humility, the questioning, but also the drive, the passion and the, and the willingness to blow it up. I'm imagining you as a university president and what you would do to, to completely upend it all and recreate it. And I'm not sure we have that leadership in higher ed that we need right now. It's so hard, you know, it's like, it's, it's so easy for somebody like me to sit over here and on the side, I know. Yeah. And, you know, it's so hard if you've got an endowment to worry about and uh, you've got, you got potential financial probation to go on and then what happens to school and all those things and it's hard enough. So I have a lot of sympathy for, for college presidents. It's really hard. But if I were a college president, I know what I would do. I would take a very... Um, strong stand on two things it would be you know the one would be on strategic you know we come here for a strategic life and then the second which would include a lot of things you said about environment mm-hmm. and uh and social cause causes uh, uh 
those would be part of the curriculum for sure, but but so would uh, you know long-term development of your own values and and that have some method of bringing you back to campus or virtually in every every couple of years to redo your own strategic plan and you know constantly develop it and reflect back on what you did the first time, how much has changed and help you grow and learn. And I would absolutely be doing all that stuff for sure. Um, yeah, I really, I, I really like how you put that because you know I adore higher education and I've been in the field. It's been my whole field, and I value so deeply the tradition, the president, the faculty, the the VPA, everything striving together to change the world. But I, I, but the world seems to need something more, and I and I'm calling on higher ed to 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 find a way to get there. I, I agree with you. Now let's flip it around, and I'll answer the question in a different way. If, okay. Yes. If you're a if you're an 18 year old kid, do you and you say, do I really need to go? There's that Amazon thing. Yeah. You know, that Lynn talked about. I think the answer is no. You don't really need to go. But here's the deal. When are you going to get four years of your life to learn laterally across all these different topics that you'll never take that time off again? When are you going to get a chance to do that with people your age who are going through the same thing you are? Uh, when are you going to get in a, 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 this little island that you called at the beginning, this, this oasis of time to really think and grow and, and be challenged and challenge other people and do it in a place where, you know, you, you, you really... You can't hurt the company. You can't. You can. You really can hardly hurt yourself. <laughs> you won't get that again. So, so yes, definitely get higher education. Go to a school. If you can't, if you don't think you can afford it, find a way to afford it. Pay for it uh, by working. Take on loans. Do whatever it is, because at the end of the day, it's worth it. You only live once. Four right. years of education is such a, an incredible gift to yourself. You know, and we don't honor that enough in the U.S. We see colleges something you go through as opposed to, um, it really is a rite of passage. It really is this extraordinary extended experience that allows us to become something different. It's it, it, it is interesting. Well, outside the US, I admire you know, the program. They don't change, they don't create it. They don't admire it that much, but they really admire the US. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Because they, yeah. they're like, wow, you guys have these, you have these beautiful campuses, you go there for four years, you get to study more than just subjects you're going to work in later, you know, it's like, wow, it's really cool. And I do think it's really cool and it's really wonderful. And, you know, if, if life were just about, you know, you know, getting out, getting a job, getting married, having some kids and then retiring and playing golf, then I guess it's okay. But if your life is really about getting the most out of life and growing and learning all the way through, then man, four years of, of head start is really awesome. Yep. Unfortunately, the inequities of who gets to go and get to really experience that is just steeped and right back to our anti-racism. But Joanna, that's my soapbox. Back to you. <laughs> you got to get to your, your, your famous question or another one. Well, so yeah, we have a famous question. That's our last question that we ask everyone. And in terms of so much you've, you've given us and to think about of leaders and how they learn, how they need to, and how they need to be self-reflective. And my favorite thing that you said, you just quiet boredom. <laughs> With you, I never want to be quietly bored. <laughs> but uh, our, so our last question is, who or what inspires you? I'm really inspired by creators. You know, creators of all kinds. I mean, the, the you know, I'm, I'm inspired by, uh, everybody who creates something because I think everybody can create, you know, and the people who choose to create have, have uh, 
have moved one step into doing stuff and taking risk and and it and and I get to see it because in our business you know we're, we we actually make things for people to create whether it's podcasts like this one or mm-hmm. or or art or virtual reality art we make a pin you can create right, stuff right. or a new business new business model or get to recreate a company like mm-hmm. You know, this is a creative world we're in, you know, and, and I think it's too easy to think of it as an analytical STEM world, because it is, but it's also a very creative world where, you know, innovations happen because of creativity. The most creative thing in the world I can think of is nature, you know, and I mean, look at, look outside your window and you just, it's hard to believe anybody could have come up with all this because they didn't, nature did. And so I think I'm naturally attracted to creators and creativity and of all kinds, all yeah. kinds. And I see it at you know at every level, so that's probably my, my the thing that inspires me the most. I really get I am so excited about all the things people are creating. You've been listening to the Leaders Who Learn podcast, produced by Claremont Lincoln University. We really appreciate your support. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast please check out www.claremontlincoln.edu for more information about Claremont Lincoln University and our graduate degree programs. Until next time.